Section 70 of Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies, An Authentic Record of Remarkable Cases, by John B. Lewis and Charles C. Bombow. Suicide, Part 2. Culvocresses, Part 1. It is seldom that the public mind sustains so severe a shock as it did upon the announcement of what appeared to have been a brutal murder of Captain Culvocresses, a distinguished retired officer of the United States Navy, who was discovered in a dying condition in an unfrequented street in the city of Bridgeport, Connecticut, at a late hour of the night of June 3, 1872. The newspapers of the day were filled with sensational details of the occurrence, and every rumor touching the tragic event quickly found its way into print. After a lapse of several years, we may now view the facts and circumstances attendant upon this remarkable case with freedom from the prejudice which necessarily obscured them at the time of their occurrence. At all events, in this recital of incidents and facts, we shall confine ourselves to the narration of such only as are believed to be true. Closely intertwined with the history of this event are certain facts connected with heavy insurances which had previously been effected upon Captain Culvacress's life. It was, ostensibly, to meet the agent who had placed this insurance, that he was en route for New York at the time of his mysterious death. Therefore, in order to make this account wholly clear, it will be necessary to advert briefly to the particulars of this insurance. It appears that Captain Colvacaresses called at the office of the Commonwealth Life Insurance Company in New York City on the 23rd day of December, 1871, saying that he desired to place a considerable amount of insurance upon his life, and requested an introduction to some of the other life companies. He was taken to the office of the North America Life and the Connecticut Mutual, where he underwent the usual medical examinations. On the evening of the same day, he left the city for his home in Litchfield, Connecticut. A few days later, an agent of the Commonwealth Company went to Litchfield for the purpose of conferring with Captain Culvacresses about placing the remainder of his insurance, and held an interview with him upon that subject on the morning of December 27th. In reply to a question as to his object in obtaining so large an amount, for he had said he proposed to insure very much more than $50,000, the captain replied that he had to go to Washington to attend to a suit against the Navy Department for more prize money, and as he might lose the suit and the money it would cost him to prosecute it, he had determined to place as much insurance upon his life as was the amount he was contesting for. He said he did not desire to have the insurance take effect before the 15th of January." He appeared to be distrustful of the agent because he was a New York man, and said that he had been swindled out of nearly all his prize money through the investments he had made with brokers there, and he named Utley and Doherty in connection with transactions in Rochester water bonds. Upon being assured that his premiums could be paid directly to the companies, he became satisfied upon that point, 
and then entered upon partial negotiations with the agent to place the insurance for him. He named some of the companies with which he had already conferred, and others which he proposed to patronize. "'I want all the premiums,' he said, "'to be semi-annual, as my ready funds will not permit my paying them annually.' The companies and amounts he mentioned at this time were New England Mutual $10,000, Northwestern Mutual $10,000, John Hancock $5,000, National Vermont $5,000, Commonwealth $5,000. The agent arranged to forward the applications by mail to Captain Culver Cresses, who stipulated that they should be in duplicate, in order that he might reserve a copy of each application, saying that if any trouble should arise, in the event of his death, he wanted copies to be in the hands of his heirs. The applications were sent as agreed, and about the 13th or 14th of January, the captain went to New York, having with him the application all filled out. He said that he desired more insurance, and mentioned these companies with the amounts he wished. Mutual Life, $10,000, Mutual Benefit $10,000, Equitable $10,000, North America $10,000, Connecticut Mutual $10,000, Manhattan $2,500, New York Life $3,500, State Mutual $5,000, Atlantic Mutual $5,000, and added that he would want still more. The agent had agreed with him to deduct 10% of the premiums, and on that point says, It was new in my experience to have a man insure so easily, for I did not talk insurance with him at all. My conviction at the time was that what induced him to insure so heavily through me was simply the fact that he could save 10% of the premiums. End quote. Subsequently, the agent found some discrepancy in the medical examination, and he at once started for Litchfield to see Dr. Gates, the examiner there, who evidently had made an error in the chest expansion. On reaching the 27th Street Depot of the New York and New Haven Railroad, he unexpectedly met the captain, to whom he explained the object of his journey, and the two took the 3 p.m. train for Litchfield, riding in the cars together. The captain had with him, at this time, a sword cane which he took pains to exhibit, and said that he purchased it because he thought he ought to have something of the kind in case he got into trouble so he could defend himself. He also had with him a russet leather valise which he kept by him. An incident occurred en route which impressed the agent with the idea that Captain Colva Caresses was a frugal, close, and exact man. At Stamford a lunch was taken, and as the agent could not make the exact change, he obtained three cents of the captain, who, before they arrived at Litchfield, asked him for it. The correction was made in the physician's certificate of examination, and the agent again returned to New York, where he placed the insurance through the several agencies. On going to the office of the New York Life, Mr. Adams, the policy clerk, refused to receive the application, saying he then had on file an application recently made by Captain Colva Caresses. In conversation with Mr. Adams, says the agent, I said that the captain desired me to do all his business with the insurance companies, 
and that I was placing a large amount upon his life, over one hundred thousand dollars. Mr. Adams, with some warmth, replied, He can't be in earnest. He is a poor man. He is a fraud. And added, You wait a moment. Then he called a gentleman standing near, and said, Do you remember that old naval officer who has been here three or four times and made application for insurance? The gentleman answered yes. Well, said Mr. Adams, what do you think of his applying for $100,000 insurance? I don't believe he will take it, said he. He is a fraud. Mr. Adams continued, Why, he wanted to go to work for us as an agent last fall. I tell you, he is a fraud. At the time of effecting this insurance in the several companies, as applied for, the captain had policies in the New York life of 6,500, the Phoenix Mutual life 10,000, and in the Manhattan $2,500. Subsequently, the policies were taken to Litchfield by the agent and delivered to the captain, who gave his check for the amount upon the Union Trust Company of New York. The next day, the agent presented the check to the trust company's office, when he was told by the bank officers that the captain had telegraphed them stopping payment. In a subsequent telegram, the captain countermanded his order, with the explanation that he supposed he had discovered an error, but was mistaken. In March, he wrote the agent to have a policy of $8,000 placed in the Army and Navy branch of the St. Louis Mutual. This was obtained for him, and he sent his check in payment of premium. The captain called again at the agent's office in New York on the 30th day of April, and said that his suit at Washington demanded his presence there, and that he also thought of extending his trip to Port Royal. On being told that he could go without detriment to his policies, he said, I also want an accident policy, but before I have one, I want to know about this savage case which the accident company is contesting at New Haven. The agent replied that he was not familiar with the facts in that case, but he thought the company undoubtedly had good grounds for its defense. The captain expressed a desire to know what those grounds were, and at his request the agent took him to the New York office of the Travelers Insurance Company, where the object of their call was made known to the traveler's agent. It was explained to the captain that Mr. Savage was at first reported to have been robbed and murdered, but upon investigation it was believed that the wounds were self-inflicted, and the company resisted upon those grounds. The general facts and features of the case were discussed with the captain more or less in detail. Upon leaving the traveler's office, he remarked to the agent who had taken him there, well, all that is necessary for the savage heirs to establish is murder, and they will get the money. But does not the company have to establish suicide? And, he added, if savage was going to kill himself, why didn't he do it right out and not linger? He concluded that he would take $10,000 accident insurance, but would not take it then. He, however, decided to increase his insurance in the Northwestern Mutual, by taking $10,000 additional in that company. While with him on this occasion, the agent held a conversation of interest substantially as follows. The agent said, Why haven't you been in on Erie? 
It has been going up, and almost everybody with ready money, as I suppose you have, would have made money. The captain smiled and answered, Well, I have been in. Some time ago, a friend of mine said Erie was a good investment at 19, as it was then selling. I bought 400 shares at that figure. Last Thursday, I telegraphed my broker to sell, and he did at 65. The agent inquired who the broker was, and the captain said, Doherty. He has held the shares ever since I bought them. If you will look at Thursday's sales, you will see the sale, in one lot, 400 at 65. As the agent had the stock reports at hand in his office, he turned to the report of Thursday's sales and was unable to find it reported. The captain then suggested Wednesday, but it did not appear among the sales of that day. It could not be found at all under any day's sale, and the captain appeared to the agent somewhat confused in consequence. Anyway, he remarked, I got $18,400 out of it, and Doherty gave me United States bonds for the amount. The agent then asked why he continued to deal with Doherty after having been swindled by him. The captain turned away, saying they had made it up. On his return home, the captain wrote to the agent for $5,000 additional insurance, the premiums to be paid quarterly. It was obtained for him as requested. The total insurance written upon his life at this time was as follows. New England Mutual, $10,000. Northwestern Milwaukee, 20000 Mutual Life New York, 10000 Equitable, 10000 North America, 10000 New York Life, 10000 Commonwealth, 10000 Connecticut Mutual, 25000 Phoenix Mutual, 20000 Travelers, Accident, 10000 Mutual Benefit, 10000 National of U.S., 10000 John Hancock, 5000 Berkshire, 5000 State Mutual, 5000 St. Louis Mutual, 8000 National Vermont, 5000 Atlantic Mutual, 5000 Manhattan, 5000 Charter Oak, 2500 Total, $195,500. Captain Colvacresses made an appointment with the insurance broker to meet him at the Astor House in New York on the 30th day of May. For the purpose of keeping this appointment, as he stated, the captain left his home in Litchfield on Wednesday, May 29th, taking with him a russet leather valise, a small black Morocco satchel, an umbrella, and a bamboo sword cane. Arriving in Bridgeport, he went directly to the Atlantic Hotel and there took supper. His movements that afternoon and evening are not fully known, but at one time during the evening, he is known to have been on board the steamboat which was to sail at eleven o'clock that night for New York. He purchased a passage ticket, but afterwards concluded not to go, and so stated his mind to the clerk of the boat, who refunded him his money. He returned to the Atlantic Hotel, where he remained that night. The next day he telegraphed from Bridgeport to the agent that he was delayed, and made another appointment for the following day, Friday, the 31st, at 11 a.m. He appears to have remained in Bridgeport during the day, 
but his movements are not definitely known. That evening he was seen on board the New York boat, and he was on the wharf when she sailed. From the wharf he went to the Sterling House, accompanied by a policeman reaching the hotel about midnight. The policeman found him about the steamboat landing three-quarters of an hour after the boat had left. The officer told him it was time to go to bed. The captain inquired where there was a good hotel. He knew the hotels in Bridgeport perfectly well, having often been to both the principal ones. The house was locked up, but the proprietor was aroused and let the captain in. He was immediately shown to a room, but it is known that he did not at once retire, and he was heard pacing the room an hour or more. He also opened the window, and several times threw out water, as if emptying his washbowl. The next morning he again telegraphed the agent that he was further detained, but would go at once to New York by rail, and would call at the agent's office upon his arrival. At about three o'clock that afternoon he put in an appearance at the agent's office, saying that he had been over to the Navy Yard and drawn his pay, and had been to the office of the Manhattan Life, where he had paid an insurance premium. He told the agent he would leave Litchfield the next Monday afternoon and be in New York again on Tuesday morning. He returned to Bridgeport, reaching the Sterling House the same evening, where he remained overnight. The following morning, Saturday, June 1st, he went back to Litchfield and remained at home over Sunday. On Monday afternoon, he left home for Bridgeport by the Chapag Valley Railroad. His wife is reported to have said that he left his watch at home, and that he only took two or three dollars more than enough to pay his fare to New York, that she expostulated with him for taking so small a sum, and he said he could get what he wanted when he reached New York. When he left Litchfield, he had with him his sword cane and umbrella, the russet leather valise, and no other baggage. This valise he sent in the baggage car under check to Bridgeport. Arriving in Bridgeport, he went directly aboard the steamer, purchased a passage ticket, and secured a stateroom. He deposited the valise in his stateroom, but brought out with him, on leaving the room, a small black Morocco traveling satchel, his sword cane and umbrella. He was next seen at the Sterling House with the articles described at about 9.15 p.m. Having asked for supper and found it too late to be served, he went to a neighboring restaurant where he obtained supper, keeping his satchel in his lap while eating. To all appearances, he was extremely solicitous as to the safety of this satchel, both at the restaurant and at the hotel. The same fact was observed at the time of his previous stop in Bridgeport the week before, when he had the same satchel with him. His conduct attracted the attention of the hotel waiters. At the table, he placed the satchel in a chair, evidently handling it with great care, and sat in another chair by its side. The head waiter objected to his occupation of two seats. The captain replied that he would have two or none, and he was permitted to indulge what was then thought to be a mere caprice. From the restaurant he went to an ice cream saloon, and thence back to the Sterling House. After talking a few moments in front of the hotel with the proprietor, he asked the way to the steamboat, 
and the proper direction being pointed out, he started off as directed. After going a block and a half, he stopped at Wheeler's Drug Store, where he purchased two sheets of writing paper and two envelopes, saying that he wanted one envelope larger than the other, as he wished to enclose the smaller. Having procured these articles, he requested to be directed to the boat, and the druggist, stepping out upon the sidewalk with him, pointed out the way, and remarked that it was then precisely half-past ten o'clock. This was the last positively known of his whereabouts during his life, a time half an hour prior to the report of a pistol, and a distance of four minutes moderate walking to the spot where his dead body was found. From Wheeler's drug store to the boat is eight minutes easy walking. The boat's time of departure was eleven o'clock, and that night it started promptly on time. Just as the boat was putting off, the report of a pistol shot arrested the attention of police officer Bailey, who at once ran to the spot whence the sound proceeded, and found Captain Culvacresses lying upon the sidewalk in a dying condition. His shirt, immediately about the wound, was on fire, the light from which served as a guide to the spot where the body lay. He was lying upon his back, with his left hand pressed to the wound in the corresponding breast, his right arm and hand extended palm upward, and fingers half closed. Diagonally across the street, in the gutter, lay a large, old-fashioned, percussion-lock horse pistol. The stock was broken, the detached fragment lying upon the sidewalk some two yards on, in a line with the pistol and the body. Closer inspection showed the fracture in the stock to have been an old one, the parts previously broken having been glued together, and further secured by tarred twine wrapped around it. It was evident that the pistol had just been discharged, and the exploded cap remained on the nipple. His sword cane lay at his feet about two yards distant towards the gutter, and his umbrella parallel with it towards the fence. The sword blade was unsheathed, considerably bent, and bore no stain of any kind. The bamboo of the cane was considerably splintered for a distance of a little more than half the length of the sword blade. Upon the side of the cane, exactly coincident with the bend in the blade, was a dent, as though it had been grasped at the two extremities and snapped over a fence picket. The dead body and the articles found near it were removed to the station house where an inquest was held. The next morning, June 4th, there was found upon the north side of the street, some sixty feet distant from where the pistol was picked up, a red pillbox containing old-fashioned percussion caps, which, together with a large bullet of about the caliber of the one that had passed through the captain's body, were tied up in a cotton rag. The rag was tied by knotting opposite corners in precisely the same manner that a handkerchief found in the captain's valise was tied, enclosing toilet articles. It was noticed that a picket in the fence, near where the captain fell, was notched by a bullet, and farther on, the edge of the steps to the house door was nicked. These marks led to the discovery of the bullet which had passed through the captain's body. Subsequently, there was found near where the box of caps was picked up, an old shabby horn powder flask, containing powder, the little end tied up with a much-soiled rag. 
The finding of this powder horn has a history of its own. It appears that a boy, in passing, saw a bit of rag sticking out from under a gutter plank laid lengthwise with the curbstone, and pulled it out, carrying it a few steps as he walked along. He saw that it was attached to an old powder horn of no value, and threw it down where it was afterwards picked up. There can be no doubt that the powder horn was pushed under the plank with a view to its concealment. Early the next morning after the tragedy, the black satchel, to which allusion has been made, was found on the Naugatuck Wharf, under or near a railroad car, at a distance of four minutes easy walking from the spot where the shooting occurred. One end of the bag was slid open, apparently with a very dull knife, and contained only a blank checkbook. Subsequently, upon close inspection of the satchel by the Bridgeport Chief of Police, a small quantity of gunpowder was discovered in the seams upon the inside. The powder corresponded in appearance with that in the flask. Indentations upon the inside of the satchel were noticed, and it was found by taking the pistol and placing it in the bag, in almost the only position by which it could be put wholly inside, that a concavity had been produced exactly at the point where the large projecting top of the hammer precisely fits. This indentation was worn and polished, as though by long-continued rubbing of the lock against the inside of the bag, and the red morocco lining was found to be blackened by the attrition of the rusty weapon. The pistol was a large, heavily constructed article of French manufacture, with a barrel nearly as capacious as the barrel of an ordinary shotgun. The stock extended nearly to the muzzle. It was brass-mounted, with a brass plate extending over the barrel at the breech, with a fleur-de-lis crown and the letters F.M. engraved on it. Originally it was a flint lock, and had been altered to a cap lock. The barrel on the inside was quite rough, either from the corrosion of time or owing to the roughness of finish. End of section 70